You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, The Door of Life. The Door of Life. Well, if you haven't guessed, we're going back to our Gospel of John series, at least for the next month or so until we get into the holidays and we'll have more uh, festive Christmassy sermons for us. But until then, we'll, we'll, we're, we're trying to get through the Gospel of John. We've been here for a couple of years now, and uh, hopefully by December we'll get past chapter 10 and we'll get... We'll, we'll keep going in, in, in this study. Now, if you were just to recall, just like, I guess a recap here, the purpose of our Gospel of John series has always been uh, to remind ourselves of the sufficiency of Christ being our Savior, the supremacy of the Gospel, and ultimately secure in us a hope in the Savior. When troubles rise and, and we go through seasons of, of trials in this life, Oftentimes, a good comfort to us is when we are reminded of who it is holds our future, who it is holds us in, through these trials and tribulations that we might face in this life. And the Gospel of John provides this comfort, provides this information. Remember, John's purpose for this entire Gospel, his thesis is found in John chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. That's, that's John's thesis for this entire book, to prove that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the Savior prophesied and promised from the Old Testament, to, to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is equal to God in power, in authority, in nature, and, of course, to get His readers to believe in Him so that they might have life. John writes this gospel, again, with evangelistic intent so that his readers would believe. Everything written and everything that we've read and studied so far pushes this thesis to us. In the first chapter of John, there's this great exposition of Christ's identity, where He came from. He was the Word of God who was with God in the beginning and who is God. And then we see some witnesses to this. We see John the Baptist. We see the disciples as witnesses to this fact. After that, we see this great discourse of salvation with Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus and this idea of being born again. And starting from chapter 4, we start to see these episodes into Christ's earthly ministry while he was here on earth. And, and we see the, the Samaritan woman, we see some miraculous healings, we see the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water. All of this is evidence, again, of Christ's divinity, of his identity as the, pro, as the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament. Now, in between these miracles, Jesus continues to reveal himself as the Son of God, his identity as a, as a Son of God. At times, he even explicitly says that he is equal to the Father in power, in nature, in authority, if you, if, which, uh, if, if you recall in, in our study, this didn't sit well with the religious authorities. A lot of them wanted to kill Jesus as a result of him actually saying that he was he, he, equating himself with God the Father. Now, where we left off towards the end of this, uh, that we were, where we left off was towards the end of this long section of Jesus at the Feast of Booths, if you remember that whole uh, couple of chapters that we've been studying. 
Jesus' brothers wanted Jesus to come to Jerusalem and attend the Feast of Booths. Jesus says, no, it's not my time. But Jesus eventually goes and he starts preaching in the temple and once again proclaiming who he was, the Son of God. Even has these great declarations of, of his identity. He, this, we get the second great I am statement there. I am the light of the world. An explicit declaration of, of, of who Christ was coming into this world and, and bringing people out of darkness. And of course, we also got these great declarations of his divinity. Truth shall set you free. Remember that chapter? And that truth being, Christ was indeed the Son of God. Before Abraham was I am, again, Jesus declaring to the Jews that he was, in fact, God himself. Now, where we left off was in in John chapter 9, after Jesus heals this man who was born blind. If you recall, Jesus wasn't really around in that entire chapter. The entire chapter was more so focused on this man's testimony to the Jewish authorities, to the Pharisees. Despite giving them evidence that he was indeed blind, his parents came and testified on his behalf These Jewish authorities, these Pharisees, did not believe him. They, in fact, denied him, rejected him, even kicked him out of the temple. He became the first Jewish Jewish exile, so to speak, from the faith. And we get a glimpse from that. We get a glimpse of the Pharisees' hearts, the religious leaders' hearts, where they were so prideful and so hardened that they denied the truth, despite the evidence being right in front of them. And I think that's going to be important for us this morning in our text. In any case, this man who was born blind gets kicked out of the synagogue, and then Jesus confronts him, and Jesus tells him, hey, I'm the Son of God. I'm the one who healed you. This man believes and and as always during these events, there's always a crowd that ends up gathering around Jesus, even some Pharisees there. And so where we pick up in chapter 10 is continuation of that conversation that Jesus is having with that crowd. And, and supposedly even this man who was born blind would have been present. We'll see the, the, the interaction that Jesus has there. And we'll even see Jesus' third and fourth I am statements. And like the I am, these great I am statements of Christ, they denote his divinity and also a fulfillment of the old of Old Testament prophecies. They are a declaration of a promise being fulfilled through Christ and for those who believe in him. And so the hope for us this morning as we unpack our passage is that we hear from our Savior Himself what He promises to those who follow Him. The hope that we should have when, when uh, the hope that we should have for those who hear his voice, especially in these tumultuous times that we live in, where fear is a bigger plague than any virus that we can contract, where the shadow of death darkens every corner of the world, where there's enough discouragement and deception even to paralyze people. And many are. Maybe you are this morning. Is why in these, it is in these times where wolves prowl and the sheep, that the sheep must gather all the more around the good shepherd who is Jesus Christ. And gather and not scatter. And it's in these times where we must remind ourselves all the more the promises of our Savior, the promises for those who follow Jesus. And I hope that, again, if you are feeling this way, if you have been burdened or discouraged from things happening in the world, in our economy, across the globe, in the Middle East, and 
If you've been affected by this fallen world, discouraged, lost, even felt hopeless, that you would be encouraged today by the promises we see in our Savior, in his declarations. So that's the intent, that's the hope for our, our sermon this morning. Let's get into our passage. Let's jump in. Everyone say, jump for me. Haven't done that in a while. It's great. Feels good to hear it. Let's look at our passage. Let's go to verse 1 of our passage. I hope as we go back into our Gospel of John series, and especially after our workshop last week, that you would bring your Bibles and notebooks and you would follow along as we study this Gospel. So let's look at our passage here. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, I get it here in 2023, going into 2024 in a couple of months. We may not get an idea of what a sheepfold is, what Jesus is talking about here. Any shepherds in the room? No? No shepherds? Ah, sad. You know, sheep are great. If you go to New Zealand, there's more sheep in New Zealand than, are, than there are people. It's a, great, it's a great thing. I don't know, I don't know what they're doing down there. But, uh, and I, but at the same time, we may not get a sense of, of this illustration, this metaphor that Jesus is actually using in this passage, especially in the, when he mentions sheepfold. And I think this is very important for us to get the context and the picture that he's describing when he claims that he is the door for, of the sheep. So I, I brought a picture in this morning of what a, a sheepfold is. Can we put that up on the, on the screen? That is not a sheepfold. It, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll come up. This is a sheepfold, all right? It's, this, uh, it's a, a stone pen to keep the sheep safe at night. It's about uh, one and a half meters or two meters tall, so about five to six feet tall, and, and just enough so that sheep couldn't get out and so that predators couldn't get in. Made it difficult for people, even thieves to get in. And so uh, sometimes these sheepfolds would be built beside the shepherd's home or like in this case, out in the field. Sometimes it's actually built right next to a cave because uh, the sheep would then use the cave as shelter for when it gets rainy uh, or gets cold or whatnot. Uh, in fact, that even connects to the story of Christmas, right? When, when, Jesus, when rather Joseph and Mary goes to Bethlehem and they have to find a manger to, to, to give birth in and to bring Jesus into the world. It's not talking about a barn or, or a wooden structure. It's actually talking about a sheep pen that may have been connected to a cave. And so Jesus was actually born in one of these sheep pens inside of a stone cave or whatnot where the sheep took shelter. In. Uh, now, if you look at this picture, there's only one entryway. It's through this gap. And this is a little rundown. It's an ancient sheep pen that, uh, that, that has lasted for all these years. But in that little gap there... Is there used to be a gate, a door, where the sheep, only the sheep and the shepherd could go through. Uh, the shepherd would also hire an under-shepherd who would sleep at the gate by night. And we read a little about this in our passage, uh, to keep watch over the sheep. But, so imagine this is the sheep fold that Jesus is talking about. So when he says that if, if uh, anyone who doesn't go through the gate... It's not the shepherd, and he says that it's, it's a thief or a robber trying to take one of these sheep. 
Because again, only the sheep, only the shepherd could go into the sheepfold. Anyone who goes over the wall is obviously someone out to steal these sheep. Now, this metaphor of shepherds and thieves is nothing new in Jewish culture. It goes all the way back to even the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd for a time. David, the most famous king in all of Israel's history, was in fact a shepherd. This idea of husbandry or shepherding was a, was a big deal in Israel because uh, not just for food and not just because they ate a lot of sheep or mutton or whatever it is, but all the more because of temple sacrifices. They needed to raise sheep because every year they needed to sacrifice animals. Now, this, hus- this, this metaphor of, of shepherds was also used by God to describe the state of Israel's leaders back in Ezekiel chapter 34. And understand this, this is an this is a, a interesting description that God gives to the leaders of Israel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1 to 4. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Now, do you think God is talking about actual shepherds here? No, the answer is no. He's talking about the rulers of Israel. Not just the kings, the bad kings that came in the past, but really the religious leaders, the rabbis and the Pharisees, the teachers, the prophets that were leading the people of Israel away. This was God's description for the people of Israel and their leaders. You have bad shepherds. They were governing the the, the people of Israel wrong. And we see that in in sort of the history of Israel when they were conquered by nations. And so now, just just remembering the context of our passage, John chapter 10, this is on the coattails of this great exposition of this man being interrogated by the temple Pharisees, the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. The Pharisees whose hearts were so hard and so prideful, primarily trying to save their own authority and their own influence by discrediting this man who was born blind and also trying to discredit Jesus. Jesus is connecting this, this, this judgment in Ezekiel 34 with, with those Pharisees. We also read in, in uh, again, in just the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter, that there were Pharisees around Jesus in this conversation when Jesus is giving this I am statement. There was, it says in John chapter 9, verse 40, if you have your Bible, just look up a couple of verses. Some of the Pharisees, Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? So already we get the sense that this metaphor about these thieves and robbers who have been climbing over that sheep pen to steal the sheep, to hurt the sheep, to use the sheep, where Jesus was referring to the Pharisees, to religious leaders, to the governing authorities of Israel at that time. And and we'll get more into that in a bit here. Look at verse 2 with me again. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens That was, again, as you recall from that picture, there would be an under-shepherd that was hired to guard that gate, to guard that door to the sheep. 
The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Then in verse uh, 4 to 5, it goes on to say, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. We'll talk more about this next week, but it's interesting the differences between sort of um, Western European shepherding and sort of Middle Eastern Israeli shepherding style. Because if you recall, if you've ever seen shepherds in Europe or in the West, they would usually use uh, sheep dogs to herd or corral sheep whenever they're going through fields. Interestingly enough, in the Middle East and in some other places, they wouldn't use sheep dogs. The shepherds would actually train the sheep so that the sheep would know his voice. You can actually see some videos on this uh, on YouTube. I'll show you this next week when we talk about this. But you'll, you'll, you'll see a group of tourists, and, and they're, they're trying to call these, these sheep that aren't, are in this field. And none of the sheep care. They're just eating the grass, whatever. They don't care about these tourists. But once the farmer, once the shepherd comes up and starts calling them, all these sheep, all their heads pop up like, what? More food? It's great. I'll show you this next week. And, and they all end up running towards this shepherd because they know the shepherd's voice. This is a real thing. And, and, and you can look this up on YouTube, these videos. Now, look at verse 6 with me. It says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus had, told, had mentioned that the Pharisees had been blind. And we know that blindness in this context is, is talking about spiritual blindness. So that even these simple truths of God, even these simple metaphors of God, they did not understand, they did not comp- comprehend because the hardness of their hearts. And so we see coming into verse 7, this, the third great I am statement of Christ. And the explanation of this figure of speech, this illustration that he's using with the sheepfold and the robbers and the shepherd and the sheep, of course. And, and what's interesting is that this, this explanation that Jesus gives to the Pharisees is really a demonstration of his grace and mercy. Because despite the Pharisees not understanding Jesus because of the hardness of their heart, because of, the rebellious, uh, because of their rebellious heart, Jesus still explains to them this metaphor, this illustration. Jesus still wants them to understand what he's saying. So we see in verse 7 to 8, Uh, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. What Jesus is plainly saying is that every teacher, every, every false shepherd that came before, including the Pharisees that is present in this conversation, were all robbers and thieves. They were not the real shepherd. And, of course, there were not just the religious leaders of his day, but there was also all these other claims to Messiahship. There's people, men, before Jesus that claimed to be the Messiah, but just ended up dying and leading the people astray. Jesus claiming they were fake, they were robbers and thieves. And he's saying that I am the door. I am the door of the sheep. We also see a couple implications here for the Jews uh, who believe the, the sheep that... that that there are Jews who will not listen to those, those strangers, those thieves and robbers. There are Jews that will only listen to 
Christ, the Savior. And that's talking about a remnant of faithful Jews that would continue to follow after the real shepherd, the real Messiah. Now, now again, this points to the reality that some will be led astray. Some of the Jewish people will be led astray, but some will remain faithful. And again, in verse 9 to 10, Jesus claims that I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. From this, is we really get the sense of what Jesus is talking about here in this illustration of him being the, 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 the door, the sheep door. The sheep, the door, rather, the door that the sheep can only go through. And it also gives us sort of what this item statement entails for us today as believers, the promises that we ought to keep from this great declaration of Christ. So what are these promises? What are these promises that we see in regards to Jesus being the door of the sheep? Well, first and foremost, it is a promise of provision, a promise of provision. What does Jesus provide being the door of the sheep? Well, in verse 9, in verse 9 of our passage, again, Jesus plainly says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He will be saved. The thing that Christ provides by being the door to the sheep is that of salvation. Similar to the previous I am statements of Christ, they were statements of of, of, of prophecies from the Old Testament being fulfilled, but also illustrations that denote salvation of Christ being the Savior, of, the, of Christ being the Messiah. Christ as a door, his primary provision for the sheep is that of salvation. There's other things, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But Jesus came to save. See, what this idea of, be, of Jesus being a door as well indicates or denotes is that there is an exclusivity to this salvation that he provides. Only by going through Jesus can someone be saved. There's no other way. In fact, we even see uh, Jesus echo this later in John chapter 14, 6, one of the most famous passages in Scripture. I'm sure everyone knows it here, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one... Absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles echo this in the book of Acts when the Jews take them in and, 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 and interrogate them. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has, come, has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's an exclusivity with Jesus being the door of the sheep. This is the reality of salvation. You know, there's often this misconception in the world, and especially in unbelievers and the lost with other religions that... And maybe you've heard this illustration. I've heard this illustration given by a lot of unbelievers where where faith and religion and spirituality is like a mountain. Maybe you've heard of this, where it says where everybody is climbing a mountain and every religion is just climbing it from different sides of this mountain up to God. And as long as you're doing good, as long as you are being faithful, as long as you're doing you know, the good things, you'll make it to the top. 
Or maybe you've even seen, if you're driving down on the road and you see on a bumper sticker, coexist. You have all these religions and the cross is there and the crescent moon for Islam is there. And this, this mentality that, that all religions are true and we're just all making it to the top by our good works. I mean, the idea of coexisting is a nice sentiment, but that state... That sentiment doesn't fly with the God of the Bible, with Jesus himself. In fact, the Bible would say all of those other religions are false religions, doctrines of demons, idols of wood and stone, and that all who propagate such teachings, as our passage says, are just robbers and thieves. Because none of them, absolutely none of them, actually get you into the sheepfold or provide salvation, it's only through the door, Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's so interesting that all these other religions would say, we we're all just trying to work to get into heaven. You know, again, that picture of man climbing up this mountain to get to God, to get to where God is. Yet, that, but yet Christianity, the, the word of God declares that, no, None of our efforts will ever get us to the top. In fact, the real, the real way to God is that God himself comes down that mountain. Jesus came down to be with the sheep. This is the exclusivity of this, this, this great I am statement. Only through Christ, the door, can people come and experience salvation. Notice as well the, the certainty in that promise of Christ. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's a certainty in Christ's claim. It's not a, a, not a maybe. It's not if you do enough good, if your good deeds outweigh your bad, or if, if you have a flawless attendance at, the, at church. No, it's you will be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is a certainty there. The salvation that Jesus offers being the door of the sheep is an effectual one. It provides salvation for all those who would go through him. For all those, as we know from the rest of the scripture, who believes in him, who has faith in him. There's a certainty there. And not just for, for, for the, the moment of conversion, but also security for eternity. Here's the second promise that we get from this great I am statement of Christ. It is a promise of protection. A promise of protection. As the illustration implies, the door to the sheepfold keeps thieves and robbers out. And keeps the sheep safe. Keeps the sheep in. In the same way, Jesus came to protect the sheep. Who are the sheep? The church. Well, anyone that enters by him. Anyone who goes through him, right? Those who hear the Savior's call and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Who are the thieves and robbers? Again, in the context of Ezekiel 34, any false teacher, any false leader, any evil person that seeks to sway and deceive the sheep. Those who would do more harm to sheep than good. Those who steal sheep. Again, verse 10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. 
The door in this illustration, once again, is Jesus. Jesus, the door being the one who keeps the sheep from being stolen, being killed, being destroyed. Jesus, later, in, in, just in a couple of verses from here, uh, just a couple of verses down, verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the kind of protection that Jesus offers, that this door of life offers. Not just protection for this life, but also in the next. This is eternal security, a security in our salvation, a salvation that cannot be lost. Because Jesus himself protects and keeps us. It's often mind-boggling to me, some of these traditions who propagate the idea that you could lose your salvation. That if you commit some heinous sin after conversion, then, you know, God says, I'm done with you. You could lose your salvation. And as as, as if we are somehow the exception to this great statement of Christ that no one can snatch my sheep from my hands. But Elder Benji, if he messes up, well, he can take himself out. But Pastor Ian, you know, if he, if he, does, if he slips up, you know, says something bad to his wife, well, he's out of my hands. That's ludicrous. It's nonsense. Utter nonsense. Listen, let me give you some reasons why this notion of losing your salvation is ludicrous, why it's... It's it's nonsense. Well, for one thing, Christ died once for all our sins. All past, all present, all future sins. Christ died for them all. It's not just your sins leading up to your conversion. Even your sins afterwards. Romans 5 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That passage even denotes that he, he's not just dying for our sinful acts, but he's also dying for our sinful nature. While we were still sinners, while we were still in our depravity, while we were still in the root of where all our evil comes from, Christ lovingly died for us. In addition to that, another reason why we cannot lose our salvation is because those who are saved were chosen to be saved. Not because of anything good, not because of anything bad we have done, but by God's grace, by His sovereign choice. Meaning, we didn't choose God, God chose us. Knowing full well what our depravity is, knowing full well all the sins that we would commit, all our tendencies, God chose us. There's a great illustration of this in in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul gives um, this picture of Jacob and Esau to describe this. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, he says, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, nor that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Before Jacob and Esau were even born, before they had done any act, whether good or bad, God chose one over the other. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. Listen, if God chose us to be saved, 
not based on any merit, not based on any future deed, because that's, because that's the reality of it. God does not look down the quarters of time and says, well, you know, Brother Jeev is going to do great work for me in the mission team, so I guess I'll save him. That's not how it works. God, in his sovereign choice and in his love, said, regardless of what Jeev does, I'm saving him. Regardless of what sister so-and-so does, I'm saving her. You know what that's called? That's grace. Grace. Unmerited favor of God. Undeserved favor of God. Not a result of any work, any good intentions, future good works, any of that. By grace are we saved through faith. God chose us. Unless we think this is some sort of arbitrary choice that God makes, oftentimes that's what we think, right? God in his sovereignty chooses people to be saved. He elects people. And we think that for some reason that sovereign choice is just random, arbitrary. That's not true. That's not why God picks. Or that's not how God chooses people. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his love, uh, according to his purpose of his will. In love, God chooses us. In love, God chose us. He, he, he didn't have to look down in the quarters of time because even in that moment, even when we were just a thought in God's head, he loved us in Christ. Listen, this is the greatest reason why we cannot lose our salvation, by the way, because God's love. To say that we can lose our, save, our salvation explicitly is saying that we can lose God's love. That we can lose adoption, as that passage says. That for some reason, in this weird, twisted idea that God adopts people, and then once that child messes up, he says, you're no longer my son or daughter. How evil is that? I mean, if, if here an earthly parent did that, if, if one of us parents here said, I'm going to adopt this child, this orphan that has no parents, and take him as my own. But if this kid messes up and no, longer, and, and, and no longer behaves the way I want him to behave, acts the way I want her to act, I'm disowning them. That's evil and corrupt, yet we attribute that to God. Why would we attribute such a heinous thing to God? Listen, I hope this is hope for, uh, because, you know, even believers who, who, have, who listen to good, sound doctrine, I know often struggle with this truth, the security of their salvation, because maybe they've fallen into sin, maybe because they've messed up, because maybe they feel distant from God. But this is the security that Christ offers being the door to the sheep that he, he as, as, the Old Testament says, as the Old Testament says, he hems us in. 
He gathers his own. He keeps us to himself. This is the promise of protection that Jesus denotes. If, if you're still doubting your salvation, this is the reality of it. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Jesus promises this security, this protection by being the door of life. Lastly, what this, this idea of I am the door, of Jesus being the door to the sheep, what this entails is a promise of pasture. A promise of pasture. Verse 9 again says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What does Jesus mean here in this illustration? What is he referring to? Is it simply salvation? Is it eternal life? Is it heaven? It's important to point out that when Jesus is talking about here, the language that he's using is covenantal language. When he says he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, that's covenantal language in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 6, Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. Psalm 121, verse 8, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Look at Numbers chapter 27, verse 16 with me. That the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Christ's claim as the door of the sheep fulfills this covenantal promise of blessing of God's presence and God's leading over his people's life. Uh, a life that is free from sin, a life that is, is free to go and live. This illustration is not that the illustration that Jesus gives is that, that the sheep remain in that sheepfold that they are closed off forever, but they are even free to go out. That they are let loose into the pastures, into the fields, to, to enjoy a plentiful pasture. A pasture is just simply a field where there's an abundant grass and foliage suitable for sheep to graze in. And the sheep can run around and play and all these good things. All within the safe reach of the shepherd. And how that looks tangibly for believers, moving away from the metaphor, is look at verse 10 with me. Again, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Erosos in the original Greek, meaning beyond what is anticipated, exceeding expectation, more abundant, going past the expected limit. It means here in this life, here in this, this, the, in this life that we, work, that we live in and what the rest of the world experiences, the nine-to-five job, the family, the relationships, the pension plans, the hardships, the trials, the fears and failures, 
That's the standard human life that we all live in. But the life that Jesus offers, the life that the door opens to, is one of peace and real hope and true love and genuine forgiveness, freedom from sin, and the presence of God. This promise of an abundant life means that those who live through Christ, those those sheep who follow after Christ, have the promise that in Christ they can experience a life that is full. Life to the fullest. Not just eternity to come, not just in the sense of material things, but experience joy upon joy in this life. Free of fears, of hopelessness, of depression. Simply because we are in the presence of our Savior. Simply because this door of life permits us to live this kind of life. There is more freedom in the life of a believer than any person out in the world. Anyone apart apart from God. There is more joy, at least there ought to be, in the life of a believer in the life of a believer than anywhere, anyone else in this world. Joy, meaning happiness independent of circumstance. Meaning regardless of what may come our way, regardless of what trials may come, regardless of what's happening out in the Middle East, regardless of what's happening in our, in our economy, we have joy because our Savior is there. Because our Savior gives us joy. You know, oftentimes... And, and, and I hate to say, but oftentimes I think this way too, and, and, some, and maybe it's, I, I, I depict it in this way sometimes too, but I think we have this notion that the Christian life is miserable. It's dour, or it's lifeless, it's all about picking up your cross and hardships and suffering and uh, getting up in the morning to come to church. It's all about, you know, self-sacrifice and suffering. But, you know, as I was preparing for this sermon, absolutely reminded through this passage that the Christian life is meant to be a joyful life. A happy one. A life of celebration. The Christian life is... Uh, is one with hope, one where promises are fulfilled, one where we can be certain and sure that our sins have been forgiven, have been washed away, have been nailed to a cross. A life that, that, that assures us that we have a relationship with the Holy God, that we have access to Him. We have more reason to rejoice in the richest man in this world We have more reason to celebrate than a person who has the most accolades and titles or the person person who is the most successful in this life. We have the privilege to pasture with our Savior. The freedom in our Savior. We have been given the privilege of an abundant life. That is something... That is something to be joyful about. Something to rejoice in. Again, the Christian life is not, it should not be one of of hopelessness. 
or, 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 or one that, that is miserable. It ought to be one of joy. You know, it was interesting. I've read this passage in, in John chapter 10 in preparation for it um, many times. And it was only in this past week that when I was thinking about how does this abundant life look like? How does this, this abundant life that Jesus offers, how, how is that supposed to look like uh, tangibly? And then this, this passage in Scripture came to mind. If you have your Bibles, turn, it, turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I love what it says here. And this is a passage that we've probably all read before, that we know by heart. But this denotes a life that is whole, again, abundant. The life that Jesus was offered, or the life that Jesus offers to those who follow him, to those who go through him. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Just the first statement alone. The idea of just the fact that, that God himself is our shepherd, our leader, the one that we follow, that we will not be found in want. Not lacking in anything. He goes, the, David goes on to say, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is a shepherd that cares for the sheep. That in our burdens, in our struggles, in life, he's the one that leads us to places of rest. And he goes on to say, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I love that because that is a word of security, of protection. Because God himself will keep us on the right track. Will keep us on his path for his name's sake. For the glory of his great name. Listen to this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Despite death happening all around the world, despite trials happening, there is comfort in, in David because God himself is present in his life. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Shepherds had a rod and a staff. One would be to protect the sheep from predators, and the other would be to corral the sheep, to bring them in closer. This is a God who cares, who protects us, who walks with us. And this next part is mind-boggling. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Why would you... You know, why would you prepare a place for eating, for feeding, where there's enemies around? Only because a shepherd could protect the sheep. And he says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is the idea that, you know, the sheep would often get flies and parasites come and attack them. And the shepherds would pour oil on them to heal their wounds and to also keep the flies and bugs away. And he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Does that sound depressing? Or does that sound joyful? 
Does that sound like a, from someone who, 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 was, who, who dreaded his walk with God? Or someone who absolutely enjoyed life despite death and evil and enemies surrounding him? This is the heart of someone who is absolutely joyful in the presence of his shepherd. And that's our invitation this morning as well. This great imagery of this great I am statement of Christ that says that he is the door promises us provision, provision of salvation. And only through him can one be saved, can one have a reconciled relationship with the Father. This I am statement also promises us protection, security, not just in this life, but unto the next. It is the good shepherd who keeps his sheep and does not let them go straight. And this is also a promise of pasture for all those who are in Christ to have life abundantly. Not one that is free of problems and trials and tribulations, but one that has his presence, has his leading, has his joy and hope in the midst of it all. One that is content and satisfied in his, in, in his leading, in his shepherding. I would say for those who are listening to my voice and maybe even in this church, if you have yet to, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have yet to go through Christ, as your Savior and Lord, the invitation is to do so today. There's no other way, there's no other way, no other name under heaven or on earth or below earth that man can be saved. It's only through Jesus Christ. God made a way. He is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep so that we can live. And for the found, I pray that we would be reminded of this great invitation. This great invitation to, to put our hope, to find joy in our Savior, in our Good Shepherd. An invitation to, to remember what has afforded us such joy, such privilege in this life. Christ laid down his life so that we can have an abundant life. As we enter into a time of communion, this is what we recall. The broken body of Christ, and the blood that was spilt for our forgiveness, for the washing of our sins. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.